I invite your attention to the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Would you follow, please, as I read the first 19 verses of um, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame as it is... as At this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn aside, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. 
for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Albert Einstein is a name that's uh, in the news a bit of late. So you may have seen the article about the uh, the letter, the original handwritten letter of his that was sold in an auction just recently. I think it was for $440,000 or something like that. Um, and in that letter, there was a line in it where he stated that the existence of God was um, was foolishness. Uh, maybe that's why it was so valuable. <laughs> well, uh, on another occasion, he uh, Einstein was speaking at uh, the uh, before the doctoral students at Princeton University, and and one of those doctoral students asked him, uh, Dr. Einstein, what is there left in the world for doctoral students to do original ser- research over? He replied, Prayer. Find out about prayer. Somebody needs to find out about prayer. (laughs) Amen. Ain't that the truth? I I hope somebody does. I hope somebody will. I hope somebody will help us find out something and settle some of the issues about prayer. Because there is no activity in the spiritual life that I know of that is more frustrating and unsatisfying and guilt-producing as prayer. Um, you know, guys, we are currently failing miserably in our prayer lives, are we not? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that Daniel can help us. Because I, I hope you pick this up as I read this passage. Do you, you, you do see, don't you, what, what uh, Daniel is doing? He's praying. This is a prayer of Daniel. And I'm hoping that there there are some lessons in there for us in terms of our own prayer life. So I'm trying to what I'm going to try to do is lift out three lessons out of out of his prayer for us. And then there's one more that I want to add at the end which is not from Daniel, it's um from Henry Nowen, but we'll get to that later. So we're going to leave that dissertational research to somebody far brighter than we are. What we're going to work on this morning is just trying to cultivate a prayer life. And let's see if Daniel can help us. Okay, here's here's the first lesson. Daniel was uh, quite a student of Jeremiah's. What does that have to do with anything? Let me explain. Gang, did you did you get it when I was reading this this um, this passage? Do you see what happened here? Daniel is is having some time with God. Uh, maybe in the morning. I in the I don't know where he's having it, but he's 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 um, he's spending some time with God and he's reading the book of Jeremiah. His name is mentioned in verse two or three. Um, but Daniel is reading Jeremiah. And he sees in that book of Jeremiah that there is a statement made in there. By the way, it's in Jeremiah 25. You can read it yourself this afternoon. 
But he sees in Jeremiah 25 that there is a, a, a number that is mentioned about how long the Babylonian captivity is going to last. He, he says it in verse 2. He says it's, it's going to last 70 years. He got that from the book of Jeremiah. The prophet, you know, the guy that lived 100 years before he did. Or maybe 75. But um, So he's reading Jeremiah. And he comes upon this verse that the Babylonian captivity is going to last 70 years. So he starts figuring out. Let's see. Um, I think we're in about year 67 or 68. Now, let's just assume for a moment that Jeremiah also knew something that the prophet Isaiah had said, Isaiah 44, where Isaiah points out that a guy by the name of Cyrus, Cyrus was going to be the one that's going to permit them to return to Jerusalem. Now, when Isaiah wrote that um, 90 years in the past, Isaiah says, who's Cyrus? But then 90 years later, Daniel sees this Cyrus guy. Why? Cyrus is the king of the Persians. And and he's in the mix. I mean, he's on the radar screen. There he is. Um, I mean, Darius is leading things right now. Darius the Mede. But right after him is going to come this guy by the name of Cyrus. And so he puts two and two together. 67, 68 years or so. It's going to be 70 years. And Cyrus is going to be the one. And there's Cyrus. And his little heart leaps. And he says, oh my. It's almost time for us to return to Jerusalem. And once he reads that, what does he do? It tells you right here. He prays. <laughs> the point? The point is, the thing that at least in this prayer becomes the fuel the, the the prompt, the the uh, the um, the kick in the seat of the pants for his prayer life is understanding something God has promised, something that God has said, understanding something that God said or that God has promised gives rise. To a prayer life. Which means that one of the reasons that, that our prayer life is, is so frustrating and so, so guilt producing, at least part of the reason, is because we don't know what God has said. And we're very unfamiliar with, with many of His promises. Guys, can I give you an example? I'll tell you what, let me give you two. Two examples. Do you know one of the things that you talk to me about the most 
in, in terms of frequency across a, a calendar year, do you know one of the things that you talk to me about the most? It's about your lack of assurance. It grieves me. It troubles me that, that God's people live with such a, uh, a troubled soul, a, a heavy heart. They're, they're, they're uncertain. They're unsure about their own personal standing with God. Well, that's one of the things you talk to me about the most frequently. And, and I try as best I can to, to pour some oil on the, the troubled waters of your soul. But the real voice that you need to hear is not mine. The real voice that you need to hear is God's. And you know what? God talks a lot about that subject in this book. He talks a lot about one's security, one's safety. He talks a lot about um, the provisions that he has made for individual believers. He talks about that a lot. And I'm suggesting that if we knew more about what he said about that subject and numerous others, one of the results, I think, would be a healthier prayer life. Let me give you another example. Um, Tuesday morning, it was this past Tuesday morning, I was having my time with God in the morning, and I was reading Psalm 62. Now, um, Psalm 62 is not one of those that we memorized, guys, and um, uh, it, it was it's somewhat of an unfamiliar, and, and we could go look at it, but we don't, really don't have time, but if you'll just take my word for it for a second. Um, in about the first five verses of Psalm 62, there is the mention of the word alone four times. That is, God alone is my safety and shield. God alone provides my strength. And God alone is my fortress and my salvation. God alone is... It mentions it four times. And of course, when, when I see a word repeated like that, I usually try to, you know, latch hold of that word and figure out what, what's going on here because it's an emphasis of the psalm. The psalm's not long, 12 verses or so. And um, this mention of God alone, God alone, God alone, God alone, just stopped me. And, and as I spent some time just meditating about that word, or really two words, God alone, there was a couple of things that grew out of that, personally. First of all, there was a sense of conviction. Conviction because um, what that psalm was saying is that God was enough. And you know what? He's not often enough for me. He's not enough. I mean, he's not the only place that I look to to meet my needs. There, there are, there are numerous occasions where I'm trying to get my needs met in other ways than simply pursuing my knowledge of Him. So, my, my point is, there was a sense of conviction that grew out of that. The other thing that 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 resulted was. Oh my, God is sufficient. God is adequate. He is enough. 
And so there was a, there was a note of praise and a note of worship that grew out of that, just fixing on that one word. Now guys, how did the confession flesh itself out? In prayer. How did the, the adoration and the praise work itself out? In prayer. Now, guys, I, I hope you understand. My, my point is simply this. Um, it is it is knowledge of this that gives rise to that. Um, would you say that that your prayer life is rather inadequate? Then one of the first things that I think we can learn from Daniel's prayer is that he was a great student of Jeremiah. (laughs) He was a great student of the scriptures. And as a result, prayer kind of erupted as a result of his reading, his grasping, his understanding of, of the things that God said and the things that God promised. So that's a lesson for us. You want to improve here, then improve here. Okay, here's the second lesson. What is this prayer all about? Um, um, What what are the topics of conversation in this thing? Did did you notice? I mean, there there are a few, I guess, but um, the thing that really stood out for me is that... All the confession of sin. Did, did, did you pick that up? Uh, verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Um, verse 7. Uh, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Uh, verse 8. Because we have sinned. Verse 9. We have rebelled. Verse 11, we have seen, I and mean, we can go on and on, but I mean, you get the point. One of the emphases of this prayer is Daniel's confession of sin. Now, gang, first thing I want you to note is um, how he includes himself. He doesn't say, oh, God, Israel sinned. Israel has sinned, God. He doesn't say that. He says, God, we have sinned. We and my people, we have sinned. I mean, he includes himself. This is not about somebody else's sin. It's about his. Which which leads me to suggest that even the most pious among us, as was Daniel, have a lot of confession uh, that's needed. But guys, that, that really wasn't, that's not really the point that I, I want to make. I, I, I mean, um, because when it comes to this confession thing, there's something that you need to know. There's something that you need to grasp. I need those. Um, it, something that gives rise to confession is something that you'll find Daniel doing. And I want you, I want you to take a look at it. Look, uh, folks, um, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord 
my God. Um, uh, that emphasis is made numerous times, guys, where he talks about verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God. Um, the, the point is this, guys. Daniel is confessing his sin. Yes. A lot of confession going on. But it is in the context of his confessing his sin, knowing of his own secure standing. That is, he is confessing his sin in the knowledge of, I belong to this God. He is my God. I am a part of the family. I am one of his children. I'm confessing to the Lord, my God. You know, folks, um, here's, here's the point. I, I guess the best preface for, for confession of sin is a knowledge of my own sonship. That is, that's something that you're going to have to settle before you're going to find this flowing out of your soul. That is, you're going to have to find a great degree, a high level of comfort over who you are and where you stand and to whom you belong before you'll ever do this. Before this kind of honesty, before this kind of vulnerability, before this kind of openness, before this kind of confession, the thing that gives rise to it is a consciousness that I belong to a God who is rich in mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he says that. That is, Daniel says that. He says, um, uh, you know, we have rebelled, but oh my God. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Folks, once you understand that, it gives rise to a certain honesty to your soul. You don't have to hide your sin. You can be honest to God. You know, guys, I don't have to avoid face time with God. I can confess my sin openly, honestly, to the God to whom I belong. Knowing that this God is a God who forgives and is grants mercy and grace. You know, guys, um, C.S. Lewis once said, we not, we're not supposed to tell, we're supposed to tell God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. You know, we probably know what ought to be in us. But what you see going on here is a man who is, who is very vulnerable, not trying to hide anything. By the way, there, there is an occasion um, in Psalm 32 where the psalmist says, um, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones ached. Yeah, they do. You know, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous... Uh, they have a little saying, and, and I'm quoting AA now. They say, we are as sick as our secrets. We are as sick as our secrets. 
But I don't have to keep any secrets. And I don't have to have bones that ache. Because there can be an openness and honesty about my soul. Because I have settled to whom I belong. Guys, what I'm saying is the second lesson that I hope will give rise and give some order to our own prayer life is that you must settle your own sense of sonship. You must settle to whom you belong. One of the reasons that we avoid prayer is because the whole notion of coming before a God whose eyes are too holy to even look upon our iniquity, (laughs) that's not comfortable. And I'm not saying that it gets comfortable for the Christian, but I am saying there is a an openness and honesty to the soul when we know that this God is... In fact, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray saying, Our Father. There's no relationship more firm than a father and a son. Our Father. That's the kind of thing that gives rise to this kind of confessional vulnerability and honesty. If there is a measure of uncertainty about your soul, then um, then this is not going to be happening much. We might, we might talk about sin in vague generalities, but bringing the fact that my eyes are still full of lust before him. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Or that I envy my next door neighbor. Or I'm still... I still have such a wicked tongue that I, I don't want anybody to know. Settle your sonship, my brother and sister in Christ. Settle that. And this tends to happen. Okay. Here's the third lesson. Um, I, I want you to see it. It's in verse 3. By the way, he's, he's, he's closed his Bible in verse 2. Um, and having, having learned what he learned out of Jeremiah, he closes his Bible and then he says in verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God. Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Here's the point. Here's the lesson, guys. If, if prayer is to prosper, you gotta bring your A game. That is, do you notice what he does? To, to, um, <laughs> To ready himself and prepare himself for prayer, he is um, fasting and is clothed with sackcloth and ashes. There is energy being expended. There is effort being described. There's no nodding. There's no nodding off in this guy. You know, I heard somebody say that um, people on sinking ships aren't distracted while they're praying. Well, here is a guy who comes to his prayer life and he is utterly engaged. 
you know, I, I guess this would probably condemn 1045 praying while prone in bed. <laughs> you know, just, I, I'm not condemning that, guys. I'm just saying, if, if, if you want some kind of meaningful prayer life, there's going to be effort that is going to be expended or required. Guys, there, there are, um, there are two parables in uh, the New Testament where Jesus is teaching persistence in prayer. There's one in Luke 18 and there's one in Luke 10, I think. One is about, um, let's see. Uh, Luke 18, I think, is about the uh, stingy neighbor, and Luke 10 is about the uh, the unjust judge. I might have those backwards, but remember the, remember the stingy neighbor parable where this guy has a visitor that comes to him late at night, and so he goes next door to try to buy, to buy some bread, or no, to borrow some bread, and the guy answers from his bedroom, leave me alone, leave me alone, I'm in bed, the kids are in bed, we're all in bed, just leave us alone, go away, we're, we're busy, we're, 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 we're in bed. And then the, as the parable goes on, um, you know, he keeps pounding on the front door and pounding on the front door, and finally the guy says, you know, I'm going to get up and get him some bread because he's not going to leave me alone. And then the other parable, which is very similar to that one, but it's about an unjust judge. And a woman brings her case and pleads her case with the unjust judge. And the, and the judge says, well, I'm going to give her what she wants. Not because I fear God, but because she's just driving me crazy. What does that sound like to you? I mean, um, don't you see a bit of energy? Um Guys, if this is ever going to be fruitful for us, we're going to have to bring our A game. Um, you know, I, I, I've got a, oh, well, he's not a friend. He's just a guy I read who is a, um, he's a English, Angl- he's an Anglican who sit, and I'm, I'm quoting him poorly now, but he says something about, you know, my prayer life is so frustrating and it seems to produce absolutely nothing because it seems like it's a game of hide and seek. God hides and I seek. Okay, that's that's pretty much uh, my experience too. But folks, what you find unfolding here is a man who is giving himself. He's not he's not nodding off to a a seven minutes with he's giving himself to it. Um. Guys, every relationship takes work. All relationships take work. Uh, and perhaps the key piece of work in every relationship is communication. You know, communicating with my wife, communicating with my children, communicating with my neighbors, communicating with my boss. The, 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 the hard part is in that, that, that communication effort that's required to develop relationships. Why do we think a relationship with God is not going to require some of that? It's going to require some of it. Um, what you see the prophet doing is he's bringing his A game. And that's the other thing that I think you can learn from this text. Um, that is, a knowledge of Scripture, a, a, a settling your sonship, and bring your A game. If, if you want something, if you want this to improve, 
then it's going to require something that's similar to verse 3 there, or at least certainly moving in that direction. Now, I got one other thing that I want to, I want to tell you, and it's really not in the text. It's, it's really something I got from Henry Nowen. So I've got a couple of quotes here. I got to read those. But, um, you know who Henry Nowen is? Henry Nowen, um, was a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, he died recently, maybe in the last three or four years. Um, but he spent the last years of his ministry in the day spring homes or the day spring. And the day spring was a ministry for the retarded. Um, I, I, he wrote a book on the prodigal son, which is the best thing available. If you want to study the prodigal son, then get his book. Uh, I did a series several years ago um, on the prodigal son, and I borrowed heavily from Henry Nowen. But um, Henry Nowen has got this little, it's not a pamphlet, it's kind of a paper, I guess, on prayer. And, and he poses this question. <laughs> um, why should I spend an hour in prayer when I do nothing during that time but think about people I am angry with, people who are angry with me, books I should read and books I should write, and thousands of other silly things that happen to grab my mind for a moment? I mean, do you relate to that? I mean, why should I do this? I mean, all I do when I, when I get to my prayer life, my mind goes racing off to the, you know, to the, uh, my grocery list or my, my, the people that I'm mad at or mad at me or, uh, you know, the, the things that frustrate me about my work. You know, why should I do this? So Henry Nowen said that the first, the first thing I came up with was that the development of spiritual disciplines is a good thing. So. It's good to develop a spiritual discipline. That's why you should pray. And then he said, the longer I thought about it, and again I'm quoting, he said, in the end I concluded that sitting in the presence of God for one hour each morning, day after day, week after week, and month after month in total confusion, and with a myriad of distractions, radically changes my life. It does. It does, doesn't it? You learn a little bit about humility. You learn a little bit about dependence. And you, you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you seem to be getting absolutely nowhere. And you're engaged in this game of hide-and-seek. And, and then somewhere in the course of it all, you realize that God has done something. Not what you expected. Not what you had thought. Not what you had predicted, but he's done something. He's done something in you. Guys, does, does prayer change God? Of course not. Does prayer change things? 
Yes. And one of the things that it changes is me, which is probably the thing that needs the most amount of change. You know, I go to, um, I teach this systematics class twice a year. I teach it in January and July. It's coming up in July if you're interested. But I teach this systematics class. And this subject comes up invariably. When you start teaching about the sovereignty of God, people get all stumbled up over prayer. What are, I don't get it. If God is sovereign, why am I supposed to pray? I, I just don't, I don't understand why. And, and so they're, they're tripping up over prayer. Guys, if, if I had to answer in one sentence why I should pray, here's my best. Because Jesus did. Um, you know Jesus, you remember him? The Savior of sinners? He prayed. He prayed before making decisions. Remember before he chose the twelve, he spent the night praying. You remember this, this Jesus who is, who is the Messiah and the second person of the Trinity and, and, and the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yeah, that one. He prayed. He taught prayer. He taught his people to pray. And you know what he did, what he was doing only hours before he was arrested? I mean, let me, let me say that again. You know what he was doing with the hours before he was arrested? He was praying. He was struggling with God. He was asking for something that God said no to. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is going to give you everything you need, and often he's going to do that by denying what you're asking for. Jesus is going to give you everything that you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. If you knew everything that he knew, then you would ask for what he's going to give you. But much of the time, he's going to give you what you need by denying what you've requested. Did you get that? The hours before he was arrested, he spent them praying. Asking God to let a cup pass from him. And you know what God said? You know what happened right after he got that message? He went and died in our place. A Savior who dies in my place prays and prays a lot and gets turned down in some of his requests. Maybe that'll help us as we try to improve our prayer lives. I hope so. That's good. Our Father, I do pray that you will uh, stir your people, not because we've got everything figured out, not because we've got everything um, understood. We don't. But um, what we want, oh God, 
What we want is intimacy with you so that we can hear you say no to us and we would say, nevertheless, your will be done because it's best. It's right. It's good. But we're not there, Lord. We're not there. We want our way. And maybe maybe if our prayer lives improved, we would get closer and that we would find that you have that you are nothing like a stingy neighbor, that you are nothing like an unjust judge, that you give everything needful. And you do so often by telling us no. Would you, um, would you woo us to yourself, Father, by the beauties of our dying Savior praying on our behalf? We, um, we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.